This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Andrew Beer. He has really a fascinating background and career in finance. He's a managing member at Dynamic Beta Investments, which is one of the oldest firms doing liquid alternatives. Really quite fascinating. Their goal is to roll out things that look like hedge funds, but with full transparency, liquidity, and none of the high fees. It, it's really a fascinating space, sort of bringing the philosophy of Jack Bogle to the hedge fund space. If you're at all interested in liquid alts or managed futures or want to learn how these things work, I think you'll find this to be a fascinating and wonky conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Dynamic Beta's Andrew Beer. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Andrew Beer. He is a managing member at Dynamic Beta Investments, one of the older firms in the liquid alt space. Their goal is to deliver hedge fund-like returns, but with reasonable fees and daily liquidity. Uh, Their long-short hedge fund ETF was up 25%. For the year in 2020, while their managed futures fund was flat, Andrew Beer, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be on the call today. So let's start with your background. How did you find your way to the investment management industry? So I, it wasn't clear, I guess. Um, I started as an M&A banker in the early 1990s. Uh, and back then, if you were an energetic young M&A banker, you wanted to go into the LBO business. That's where all the kind of fame and glory was. And uh, so I went back to business school. In my second year of business school, I, I got a job at one of the LBO firms, uh, a, a very well-respected firm in Boston run by a guy named Tom Lee. And in my, so I was, I was kind of in my second year of business school and, and thinking about where I was going to go in that industry. And I heard about the secretive investment firm, Baupost, uh, that had been started by some Harvard Business School professors and was hiring. Uh, so I applied, and I don't think I, I knew what a hedge fund was, but I really, really like the idea of focusing <laughs> on these weird niche investment opportunities. So instead of going into the LBO business or possibly doing a PhD, I became a hedge fund guy. And you know, 26 years later, I'm I'm, I'm stuck in that role. So let's stay with Baupost for a minute. It's run by Seth Klarman, a, a legendary investor. His book, Margin of Safety, was published years ago and then went out of print Copies go for some crazy $2,000 a copy on Amazon. What was it like working with a legend like Seth Klarman? So it was, I mean, Seth is extraordinary. I mean, he is, he is absolutely brilliant. And I think the interesting thing about Seth, uh, which is, uh, is that Seth was a value investor probably from the day that he was born. It wasn't something, it wasn't a study that he read about. It wasn't a, an academic paper that, that resonated with him. Um, he just thought of things in terms of value. Uh, and But I think it's it's really important to note that this was in the early stages of the industry. Uh, mm-hmm. The hedge fund industry was really a cottage industry back then. Just to put it in, in perspective, Baupost had 2% of the assets then that it has today, and it was still considered one of the 10 largest hedge funds. Wow. Um, so. Amazing. So what you can do with 600 million versus 1.8 million is very, very different. And then, you know, and then a lot of these markets that people invest in today were also in their infancy. Um, so, um, you know, so it really was, it was an extraordinary uh, learning experience. And I think, I think there are probably three big things that I learned from Seth. 
and I think the first was you, you should try to get the area right. Um, in other words, it's much better to find a dirt cheap area and spend your time than then spend your time trying to find the best idea in an, in an expensive one. Um, and then I think the the second is that that things should be cheap for a reason. Uh, and there's a certain humility in that. I think Seth never thought that he could look at some big large cap stock that everybody else was looking at and think he had a meaningful advantage. But if he could see banks unloading real estate assets or um, you know because they had a certain regulatory requirement where they had to get rid of them, well, that gave you a reason why something might be selling at a discount. And I think the third point is that risk isn't a statistic. Um, that there are a lot of qualitative and other judgments that go into thinking about the riskiness of an asset. So the whole idea of, of margin of safety um, is really embedded in, in this kind of complex, multidimensional thinking. And in part, it was that, um, uh, I think in, in more recent years, as I've thought about those years, I think it's one of the reasons I've concluded that value, the value factor per se was really missing something. But, but that's part of a much larger discussion, I think. Well, we're definitely going to get to the value factor a little later. You know, your, your comment about Baupost having 2% of the assets in the hedge fund space reminds me of a comment that Jim Chanos famously made. He said 30 years ago when he was launching his funds, uh, there were 100 hedge funds. They all created alpha. Today, there's over 10,000 hedge funds, but it seems like it's still those 100 hedge funds that are creating alpha. Is that an overstatement or is there some truth to that? So I think the hardest thing about hedge funds is um, is we're always looking at who is doing well today, and people have a natural bias to assume that's going to continue. Um, right. And so if you go back in time, it's a little bit like the mutual fund industry. I mean, I remember back when I was at Bell Post, I was talking to a guy at Fidelity, and he said, you know, we start 12 new mutual funds every year, and we kill six of them by June, and by the end of the year, we've got three great performers. Um, the hedge fund industry isn't quite like that, but when you do look at hedge funds today, people tend to focus on those hundred that have done well. Uh, what was interesting about 2020 was that as, as much as you read press about guys you know, having historically good years, there are plenty of guys who had middling years and, and, and you know, plenty of guys who had awful years. And so, um, you know, so the hedge fund industry as a whole, I think, had a difficult 2010 but not nearly as bad as, as it was portrayed in the press. So let's talk about that because the, the reputation, especially since the great financial crisis, was the performance has been lacking. The, the joke is come for the high fees, stay for the underperformance. Do, do you think that's too harsh or is that fair for certainly the bottom half of the hedge fund community, if not more? So... Here's an interesting, it's interesting statistic, that if you could pick the top quartile of hedge funds in advance, uh, you'd be up 30% a year with no down years. No one would care about fees, right? right. It's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit like saying, I mean, the hedge fund industry is it's even probably more so than the mutual fund industry today is, is replete with this idea that, you know, we're going to find the guy who's going to go up. Um, in reality, people found, find the guy who went up. And so, but that issue aside, um, uh, there, the disappointment about hedge funds in the 2010s comes from three areas. Uh, the first is that, is that 2008 was quite bad. Um, and it wasn't just that hedge funds went down more than expected, but that Madoff blew up large parts of the business, and there was widespread suspension um, of capital for investors who wanted to get out. 
Uh, so, you know, this was a this was about as bad as it could have been from a PR perspective for hedge funds. Um, and it was also in, in, in stark contrast to the previous bear market where hedge funds, uh, you know, actually made money during the bear market, something quite extraordinary. Um, but the second issue in the 2010s is that easy things did better. Um, in the 2010s, sorry, in the 2000s, we had essentially a lost decade for U.S. equities. You know, the S&P was down over the decade. NASDAQ was down something like 40%. And in the 2010s, just by owning large-cap U.S. and tech, I mean, that pretty much destroyed everything else. Um, and then the last is that, is that fees are too high. And this is something I've written a lot about, but basically when somebody's earning 3 or 4% and they're taking half of every dollar that they make, um, uh, it, people get more frustrated with that over time. And so it's, it's, sort of a, it's sort of a combination of factors, and there are a lot of psychological reasons um, why. But I think actually the most interesting thing is that the 2020s look a lot better. That discussion of fees kind of leads me to a different place, which is there have been some fairly innovative new concepts in fees, not just fee compression, uh, but but things like pivot fees, where there's a participation to the upside only if the fund is uh, beating its benchmark, and there's even a, a give back if the fund is underperforming its benchmark. What what do you think that looks like in the future? Are, are we going to see some innovation around traditionally higher hedge fund fees? So. Um I think it's going to be mixed. Uh, I think a lot of the industry, um, you know, one of the one of the reasons there there are a couple of reasons that hedge fund fees have remained so high. Um, the the stark reality is that most people who allocate to hedge funds, it's not their money, so they really don't care. At the end of the day, <laughs> you know, they're they're investing in a hedge fund because I mean, if you read the Financial Times or um, or Bloomberg's had some very good articles recently on hedge funds that have gone up 100%, people will be lining up at the door and completely indifferent right. defeats. Because right. it's much easier for people to say, um, you know, I don't care about fees as long as my net returns are high. The problem is, is, is when you've got 20 guys and you're paying away six out of every $10 that they make in fees, and you look back over three or five years, and, um, uh, and hedge funds have, the, the hedge fund managers have made billions of dollars and clients really haven't. And uh, there was one article recently about a firm called Brevin Howard, which is, you know, by all accounts, uh, run by a guy named Alan Howard, who's one of the greats of the hedge fund industry. Um, and those articles are talking about the fact that his funds had historically good year in 2020. What they don't mention is that when he had $30 billion in assets, they went through a five-year period of time where, by my estimate, management made 2 to $3 billion while clients lost money. Um, so, so fees are, are a real perpetual issue in terms of fulcrum fees and things like that. I doubt most hedge funds will do it. I think you'll have a bifurcation of products where some will be expensive. Um, some will be worth it. A lot won't be worth it. And then you'll have a, a suite of lower cost options for allocators to pick from. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. So let's talk about this area. It's quite fascinating. When did liquid alternatives begin to take off? What does the space look like today? So it's a, it's a great question. And I think, I think the backdrop of liquid alts, you know, why do people care about liquid alts in the first place, basically comes down to two things. The first is that the whole wealth management industry 
has evolved toward trying to push clients into model portfolios. And model portfolios, by, by definition, have diversification between stocks, bonds, and, and hopefully other things. And so, you know, when you're building a, a, a model portfolio and you can include a lot of different asset classes, um, in general, your risk goes down and you get a smoother return profile if you add in things that have diversification benefits. And, you know, the analog for this or the precedent for this is in the institutional space where a corporate pension plan you know, 40 years ago may have had one or two asset classes in it, and today it might have 30 or 40. So, you know, what liquid alts are really designed to do are to bring hedge fund-like strategies that have proven diversification benefits but make them available to investors who can't meet the high minimums, don't have the ability to, aren't accredited investors, um, uh, uh, can't bear the illiquidity um, of investing in these products. Um, the the real the liquid alts market really took off in my mind around 2012, and that was when Fidelity gave money to a hedge fund firm called Arden to create a multi-manager mutual fund. And a lot of people thought this was going to be the resurgence of the fund of hedge fund industry, which had gotten battered during the great financial crisis. And, um, and it, it launched this whole wave of alternative multi-manager funds that were designed to give you index plus like exposure to the hedge fund space. So they'd have, you know, a couple of equity long short guys, a couple of credit guys, a couple of macro guys, et cetera. And, and what it really did is it turned the attention of asset managers to this area when they looked across the world and they said, look at all these target date funds out there. You know, look at all these ETF-based model portfolios. These things are, are, are in our minds, under-diversified because they don't have exposure to the same kinds of strategies that a big pension plan might have. And so it really kicked off this arms race among fund management companies, and there were 40 or 50 of these funds that were launched within the next couple of years. And they were, um, and then, and then since then, there's really been this wave of wave after wave of new products that have been launched. And so now there are hundreds of products out there. But um, you know, but it, one of the things we've written about is is that we think actually 80 to 90 percent of the products are are um, uh, shouldn't be uh, shouldn't have investors. I mean, 80 to 90 percent of the products should be shut down because they don't do what they were originally designed to do. So let's talk a little bit about both of those things. What are these products designed to, to do? Is it simply we're going to capture a premia that your stocks and bonds aren't and give you daily liquidity? Is that the concept behind hedge fund replication ETFs? So hedge fund replication, so I think one change is that people generally don't think of hedge funds as a, a single mass of strategies. Um, and just to go back to the definition of hedge funds, I mean, hedge funds, there are dozens and dozens of different kinds of sub-strategies of hedge funds. Um, right. the, 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 the common theme in hedge funds, which, which I think is very important but, but can be lost in some of this, is that in general, hedge funds are a lot more flexible than mutual funds or ETFs or their equivalent. So a guy who was a you know invested primarily in tech stocks at the end of 2019 might be heavily invested in emerging market stocks today and he doesn't have allocators you know wondering why he burst out of his his strategy bucket no and the other thing boxes. is that hedge funds no style boxes uh, i mean the institutions have tried to put style boxes on it but which has actually been negative for the industry but but it's nothing like what you see in the mutual fund space and the mm-hmm. other is that these guys generally have their own money on the line so 
it, I don't know of many mutual funds where you've got uh, the mutual fund manager has a billion dollars of his own capital sitting alongside you. And that enforces a particular intellectual honesty in it, that if they think, uh, if they've just made a killing on, you know, having owned Apple and Amazon uh, over the past five years, and they're taking profits, it doesn't mean that they have to turn around and go into Moderna or Tesla if they think those stocks are overpriced. Um, they can they can go to different areas and find cheaper opportunities. And so, um, so you know, I think when people are looking at these strategies and thinking about it from a portfolio perspective in the wealth management space, you start with the idea that there are specific strategies, equity long short, you know, managed futures, um, uh, certain other strategies that can be building blocks in a portfolio. And you can look at the very, very long-term returns of these strategies, put them into your asset allocation model, and make a determination as to how much diversification benefit they, they provide and where they should be in your portfolios. And so I think I think in the liquid alternative space, they're moving away from some of these broad strategies that that, that cover the whole universe to to strategy specific um, building blocks, and and that's what we've really focused our time. So, who are the owners of these liquid alts? Who are the allocators? Is it uh, foundations, institutional investors, RIAs? Who are the buyers of these? It's a good question. I, I have to say, I don't know the granular data. I suspect most of it is is RIAs and wealth management firms. That institutions, who particularly those who don't have liquidity constraints, tend to like hedge, actual hedge funds uh, more than they like liquid alternatives. Uh, I would say five years ago, I saw some consulting firms building liquid alts efforts, and that seems to have somewhat died out. I guess there there, there are two big problems with liquid alts. The first is that. A lot of hedge fund strategies, when you take a guy who's been you know, earning 8% per annum in his hedge fund and you ask him to do the same thing in a mutual fund, uh, you often end up with three, four, or five. So, so you lose a lot of performance on the top just based on, on the constraints. And that was the problem with Fidelity original investments. Is And this is something I think we were one of the few people who realized it pretty early on, is that they were losing four to 500 basis points of pre-fee returns just by asking these guys to do what they were doing within a mutual fund constraint. Um, so broadly across the industry, liquid alts, and you know, Wilshire has good data on this, but broadly across the industry, Wilshire, uh, liquid alts have underperformed by 200 basis points. And that doesn't mean hedge funds were doing 10 and these guys were doing eight. It means hedge funds were doing five and these guys were doing three. Uh, and the other issue is single manager risk. And you know, the, 90% of the products are simply single manager funds that have been ported into the, into a mutual fund. And the problem with that from a diversification perspective is that hedge fund strategies, like equity long short as a strategy can provide, or managed futures as a strategy can provide value, valuable diversification benefits, but XYZ manager within that space generally does not. And, and the analog that we use is that if, you know, if, if you, like many people today, are saying U.S. markets have gotten ex- very expensive relative to, say, emerging markets, and we want to move to emerging, we want to add exposure to emerging markets, you don't pick a stock in emerging markets and call it a day. But that whole idea of saying we like equity long short and we're going to give it to Bob is a terrible, <laughs> terrible idea. Because Bob, like every other guy in this space, no matter what kind of a tear he's been on, he is going to blow up on you in the next couple of years. 
mean reversion is a cruel mistress, to say the least. You mention managed futures as a form of liquid alt. I have to confess, I have never seen the attraction to this. It feels like the, and I tend to think of this as the commodity traders, even though that's not fair. The rock star commodity traders tend to trade their own portfolios and everybody else tries to uh, raise outside capital. Convince me I'm completely wrong about that. Sure. So you're not, I would say, um, uh, you're not at all completely wrong. The, there are two great benefits of, it, of managed futures in the context of a larger portfolio. Uh, and let's take a step back and talk about what managed futures is. Right? So managed futures, it's called futures because these guys go long and short futures contracts, and it's managed because they're not doing it in a passive way. Um, so really what it means, if you walk onto, uh, you know, walk into the office of a managed futures hedge fund, you've got a bunch of guys with computers who are trying to identify, in general, trying to identify trends and momentum among different markets. So if gold has been going up, is it, is it likely to continue going up? Uh, if 10-year treasury yields have been rising, should they be shorting um, uh, the 10-year treasury? Um, and then, you know, and then, and then the, the art and the science of it is figuring out which markets do you want to be long and short, when do you rebalance, et cetera. So that's where you get into the whole managed side of it. Um, historically, managed futures have had two very, very powerful benefits uh, relative to uh, uh, for, for a diversified portfolio, particularly of stocks and bonds. The first is they, they tend to have zero correlation to both over time. Um, and although I will tell you that because they are long and short different things at different times, the correlations will go up and down over time. So it's not something like you're buying, I don't know, like a private debt instrument that you don't mark to market. It does go up and down. And the second is that they've tended to do very well in the worst equity markets. So they were up 15 to 20% in 2000 and then continued to, to do well in, in, um, uh, during that bear market. And then they were up, you know, 15 to 20% in 2000. Eight, and then did well in 2014. Uh, so the and that's great, right? Because you know, even if you have a small, if you have a two percent allocation to manage futures, and and you're standing with a client in the beginning of 2009, and you have this you know small beacon of green in the sea of red, you look like a hero. Um, the the two issues with managed futures, which are very very real, is that first. Uh, managed futures fees and expenses are still ridiculously high. And by that I mean, even in a big hedge fund product, by the time a dollar gets back to clients, it's been after something like 500 basis points in fees and expenses. Wow. And in the 1980s and the early 1990s, when you know these strategies were completely esoteric and nobody knew how to do these things, this was one of the most expensive areas in the, in the hedge fund space. Um, I mean, managed, uh, Bloomberg had an article that showed that one fund was charging about 10% per annum. Uh, and so fees have come down a lot, but not nearly as much as they should have. Um, and so as returns have come down, and as markets have become more efficient, it means that basically for the past five years, every dollar these guys have made has gone to them and their counterparties, not to clients. Hmm. Um, and then the second is single manager risk. Right? So now you have an area that's attractive, but that, on average, has been earning zero, 
and you want to add to its space because you believe in the long-term diversification benefits, what do you do? You find the one guy who killed it over the past two years. Right. And the problem in managed futures is the second problem is, is what we call single manager risk. When a guy outperforms everybody else by 10 or 15% a year for two or three years, it's luck, not skill. It's that they happen to be overweight treasuries in March, and they happen to be long gold at the time the gold took off. And so what happens again and again in this space is that people say, I want managed futures, I give it to this guy, and then he blows up on me. And, you know, the poster child for this is AQR, which did something phenomenally positive for the uh, managed futures mutual fund space in 2010 when they launched what was, a, at that point, a, a, a remarkably low-cost product of 121 basis points. Um, but they went through a good period, and they became the default allocation in everybody's portfolio. So you'd have guys who would have a diversified portfolio and then 5% with AQR. Um, for their managed future sleeve. And that fund went to $14.5 billion in assets. And then like every managed futures fund that's been on a hot streak, it underperformed by 20% over the next year or two, and now it's lost 90% of its assets. Hmm. So, so our approach to it was really we've got to solve. If we want the two first benefits, you've got to solve those two issues. And the best way that we found to solve it is you – replicate. So you basically, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. You replicate 20 of the largest managed futures hedge funds, but you replicate what they're doing before fees. So if they're long gold uh, by 15%, we'll go long gold by 15%. And, but we don't have 100 to 200 basis points of trading costs. We don't have 300 basis points in fees. So we get you back to what these strategies can do before fees and, and, and pass those diversification benefits back to clients. Hmm. Last question on this space. When you reference these sort of esoteric areas, the, the academics would have us believe they're really outperforming. Part of it, as you mentioned, was luck. Part of it is just inefficiencies in these lesser, thinner markets, lesser traded, thinner markets that when everybody eventually piles into those inefficiencies eventually get arbitraged away. What, what are your thoughts on, on some of the academic criticisms of this? So I think there's a, there's a huge problem with academic finance in general. Um, the, the first problem is that most academic finance guys are also practitioners. So this whole notion that academic finance is some you know, objective assessment of these markets um, uh, is, is often clouded by the fact that you know, these guys have another paper where they're trying to sell you something. Um, the, um, but, but, but this notion that markets get more efficient over time is absolutely true. Um, and I think, you know, my criticism of the value factor is that, you know, what Fama identified in 1962 to 1990 was that these cheap, beaten-up stocks were cheap, and they were built to stay that way. Uh, I mean, think think about what it was like for Warren Buffett in the 1960s to find a stock like Berkshire Hathaway. He had to pick up the phone, probably a rotary phone at that point, you know, call information wherever this company was located, have them mail annual reports to him. He gets them two months later. He's calculating by hand the market cap. You know, he may 
I mean, it just it's it just the level of information of just trying to get information on these companies was 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 incredibly difficult, and there was no glory in that. You know, this wasn't a, a an M and A banker being you know kind of showing up on the cover of Forbes. These guys were 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 toiling in basements, uh, in his case, in an attic, and so you know now today you can pull up carefully curated financial information on every publicly traded stock. Um, you can screen them. You can run analytics on it. It is the, the world has changed and the world has become more efficient. And there are, you know, I think one of the things that I've been asked to do is write a book on this. Um, and just to use examples of kinds of things that people were doing 30 years ago, that if you could go back 30 years ago, you'd say, buy everything. It's like forget about whether you're paying eighty cents and and Farallon, you know, is paying seventy eight, and some other guy in Soros is, you know, is willing to pay eighty two. Just buy everything because the the world has become much more difficult for active managers. Venture capitalist Mark Andreessen said something very similar. Go back and look at at all the original investments they made in these pre public companies? Would it, would it have mattered if they paid twice as much for Facebook? Although, admittedly, there's a touch of a survivorship bias in that. Let's talk a little bit about the approach Dynamic Beta takes. What is unique about it? How do you guys go about replicating all of those single manager firms? So what we do is something called hedge fund replication. And, and replication is a terrible term because it. I think a lot of people hear it and, and they, they think of mediocrity. But let me frame it in a slightly different way. If the only way that you today could invest in the 500 stocks in the S&P was by investing with active managers who charge 300 basis points, and someone came along and said, we can directly access four to 500 of those stocks and we'll charge you 100 basis points for it. It would be a pretty clear decision that the latter is not only likely to give you the benefits of investing in the S&P 500, but it's probably going to do a lot better than those active managers. And so what hedge fund replication basically is, 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 is it's using models to try to understand how hedge funds are positioned today across equities, rates, currencies, commodities, and then copy their asset allocation in a low-cost form. And so on our side, we really pioneered this idea. And by, by the way, the, the whole concept of hedge fund replication has been around since the mid-2000s, and it's really the only area of the liquid alt space that has worked consistently and reliably. And it's not just us. I mean, the way you would analyze this is you would, you would look at what we've done, but also look at, at, at other firms who've been in the space. Um, and um, and it's it's... But what's sort of remarkable about the, about this whole concept is that you don't just do as well as hedge funds. You tend to do better. Hmm. And the reason you do better is entirely from cutting out fees. Before the crisis in this space, people generally thought if we can create something that does just as well as this leading hedge fund index but offers daily liquidity and low fees, we're going to be heroes. Right? This is going to be – we're going to be the, the, the John Bogles of, of the alternative investment industry. Right, right. And, and remarkably, they did it, right? And we did it. And so, but after the crisis, we said, maybe we can even do better. Because when we're seeing this portfolio of hedge funds delivering 6% per annum, maybe they're really doing 10. 
before fees. And if we can replicate eight or nine or even 10 of the 10 and charge less, it won't just be like an index product. It'll be an index plus product. And, mm. um, and so I think, I think we're now known as the only firm, at least that I'm aware of, that has been able to consistently outperform portfolios of hedge funds. So similar to what you would think a fund of funds would do, but with better drawdown characteristics, low fees, and daily liquidity. And so in 2018, um, a, a fast-growing uh, French institutional investor called IM Global Partner was doing this multi-year analysis of the liquid alt space and said, you know, we think these guys have the best mousetrap, but they don't have any products that are available to a broader range of investors. And that's when they partnered up with us and then launched these two ETFs um, around existing strategies in 2019. Is the plan to eventually become the vanguard of the alternative space? Are you guys going to roll out more products or are you going to stay focused on just a handful of products? We've been very, very focused on what we do and I expect us to continue to be narrowly focused. Um, There are only certain strategies for which this works incredibly well. In the managed future space, uh, we've basically found a way to outperform large hedge funds by 400 basis points per annum with less risk. And so if you're deciding how do you want to get exposure to managed futures, this should be the obvious choice. We run into all sorts of agency and behavioral issues in that, you know, for the same reasons that, that, that allocators fought passive investing for years, but that's, that's changing and will we'll continue to change. But, in, you know, in our case, I think actually, and going back to the thing about Seth, uh, one of the, the best things you can do in asset management is, is decide what not to do. And so when you ask the questions about the history of the liquid alt space, every time there was a new wave of products, we, we try to look at it with an open mind and say, hey, maybe this does something better than what we're doing. Maybe we should do this instead. And every time we concluded that these were products that were being, you know, that looked great on paper that wouldn't work in practice. And, and I think we've been right six out of six times on that. So it's possible that we would introduce new products, but I don't expect to do it broadly. Um, our goal right now is that for anybody who's managing a diversified portfolio who thinks that, and we can help to make the argument, who thinks that hedge fund type strategies, and in, in this mean, I mean specifically equity, long, short, and managed futures, um, uh, has a role in their portfolios. The argument that we would make is that the way that we do it is more predictable, more reliable, um, has, uh, tends to outperform over time. And therefore, if you're thinking in five or 10 year increments in terms of how your clients, you know, are going to end up viewing this portfolio and how you're going to view this portfolio, we should become the default allocation. So let's talk about one of the ETFs in, in the space that you guys manage. The long short hedge strategy, ticker DBEH, had a great year in 2020. It was up 25%. Tell us how that sort of ETF is constructed. What goes into that, and and who do you think that's appropriate for? So that's a a strategy that we – it's based on a strategy we originally developed in 2012, which is that we we look at 40 of the largest equity long short hedge funds and diversified across a lot of different strategies – fundamental value, fundamental growth, um, emerging markets, sector specialists, et cetera. And we analyze how those guys have been making money before fees. And our goal and, and what our research has basically shown is that, um, that the way these guys primarily generate alpha over time 
is by getting is through better asset allocation. And and this goes all the way back to you know what I mentioned about about Seth Klarman and this whole idea of get the area right. If you look at you know for instance over the past twenty years in the equity long short space, they preserved capital and made money in 2000 through 2002, not because they picked a particular stock and shorted a particular stock, but they were very long, small-cap value stocks and very short, large-cap growth stocks at the time the markets fell apart. I mean, But then, by the mid-2000s, they had pivoted into emerging markets, and they rode the brick wave, and that was on the long side entirely. And interestingly, in the 2010s, they did get the markets right. They were went into U.S. quality stocks in 2012 before those stocks took off, and then ultimately embraced tech stocks toward the end of the decade. The problem with the latter two was that they don't have that much of an edge in terms of picking which tech stock is going to take off. Um, so when you compare them to the NASDAQ or, or, or particularly to, uh, or to the S&P 500, they don't look as good. So what we try to do is basically figure out, you know, if you, if you, if you could look through each of these guys' portfolios today and see exactly how much they were long and short every single stock, how much could we group into the S&P 500? How much could we group into small-cap stocks, mid-cap stocks, emerging markets, you know, non-U.S. developed, into those major buckets? And if we get that right, then that ends up explaining 80 to 100% of their pre-fee returns. So, so how do you track that all- information? How could you tell what these private and not very transparent funds are doing in order to replicate what the broad industry is doing? So the way that you can do it most reliably is actually by analyzing recent performance. So looking at 13F filings doesn't, doesn't give you much valuable information, believe it or not. Um, uh, you know, even reading prime brokerage reports isn't terribly helpful. The way to do it most reliably is you simply run a what's called a multi-factor regression against recent performance. And to be very clear, this does not work with a particular hedge fund. It doesn't work terribly well with a particular hedge fund because they will change what they do faster than, than, than the models can pick up. But in the case of a pool of 40 of these guys, um, it's a little bit like – did you ever read um, um, Jim Surowiecki's The Wisdom of Crowds? Sure. So it's basically that idea. It's that it's that you know whether one guy is long or short, a particular stock or a particular area is much less important than than you know than these guys, their their collective wisdom. You're looking more or less at quarterly returns for the group and reverse engineering what they're doing based on how broader asset classes are performing. What would have gotten them to their quarterly numbers is is that ballpark. Exactly, with the, with, the, with the one correction that it's monthly, not quarterly. So you look, you look at the past 14 months of data is the way that we do it. And I mean, so, so if you take a year like last year, um, you know, the equity long-short space overall was up 17 and a half, let's say. So really a remarkably good year for hedge funds in that equity long-short guys were up as much as the S&P, but with you know, a half of the risk. But pre-fee, they were up 23 or 24. Wow. So, so our goal is, can we get all 23 or 24, only charge 85 basis points in an ETF, and get all that X? Ex- so, so, so hedge funds overall maybe did 500 basis points of alpha. We did closer to 1,000. That's quite fascinating. You have previously written that we are on the cusp of a new golden age for hedge funds. Explain. 
So the first thing that I would say is that is that just in terms of my 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 credibility in terms of writing that article, I've been a a very well known critic of hedge funds in many circumstances. So this is not somebody who is dogmatically um, pitching a party line. Uh, in fact, my friends used to say if my car broke down in, in Greenwich or Mayfair, I should lock the doors and call hostage rescue. Um, so the, the, uh, but, but we saw something really interesting last year in that um, about mid-year in our portfolios, we started to see what ultimately became the value in EM pivot. And hedge funds got a lot of things right last year. So the first thing they did, right. So they, and by the way, to understand positioning, they went in with a tech bias um, into 2020 overall. Some, some firms were, you know, were long airline stocks and got run over, but, but overall the industry had a, had, had somewhat of a tech bias. And, and it kind of blows up the, the academic notion that hedge funds are always long value because, in fact, what we've seen is that what hedge funds do is much more dynamic. It changes over time. But um, but then they didn't they didn't cut risk in the drawdown, and as we started coming back uh, in the second quarter, they bought into the recovery. They bought into the availability of the vaccine at some point, and 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 the depth and uh, of the fiscal and monetary stimulus. So they were adding risk as the market came back, and then really interestingly, we started to see a pivot where tech stocks. Um, where as they increased risk, they weren't adding more to tech stocks. They were taking it and adding it to emerging markets and small cap stocks and non-U.S. developed. And so a lot of quant value investors have been waiting for this rotation into value to happen for years. And, and, and we think it happens in a slightly different way, which is that if you're a hedge fund, you know, as I mentioned, that's had a tech stock that's tripled over the past three years and has just gone up, you know, 80% in the second quarter, a prudent investor will take profits on it, and then where do you put it? You don't have to go back into tech stocks, so they started to look for cheaper areas. And so because of that, I think what you've seen is that hedge funds and this whole idea of asset allocation, the opportunity set for them in the 2020s looks great. Because back in 2016 or 2017, people were starting to say, the U.S. looks expensive relative to emerging markets, and then the U.S. took off and the emerging markets didn't. And then it was, you know, tech, small cap stocks might look cheap. And, you know, then you had more years of, of U.S. large cap dominating. And so, you know, this, this valuation rubber band has been stretching and stretching, and we've seen hedge funds pivoting into it. And so when, if you're, the reason this is really important is if you have a portfolio today like most wealth management portfolios that is heavily biased toward U.S. large cap stocks and fixed income instruments, you have a really big problem. I mean, U.S. large cap stocks are historically expensive and fixed income instruments, the expected returns are, you know, close to zero. So, so, you know, how can you add something that does better? And I think what we're seeing is, is the opportunity set for hedge funds now because these valuation disparities are so wide and they have the flexibility to really take advantage of it. They have a clear role in investors' portfolios over the next 10 years. So that's a really interesting observation. The U.S. has certainly been much pricier than overseas and emerging markets for way over a decade. And, and you could say the same is true for growth over value and large cap over small cap. What sort of persistency might hedge funds have in these spaces do you find generally they're willing to ride out that rotation for a long period of time? Or, or does it, you mentioned a decade, 
the reputation is a little bit of the flavor of the month sort of thing, and whatever next shiny object comes along is going to draw their attention. Again, I, I, I always have to say, is that an exaggeration, or does it not apply to everybody? Is it an overstatement, or is there some truth to that? So the core of what hedge funds do is to get these multi-year trends right. The attention often goes to short-term shifts. So, for instance, hedge funds are, have been short the U.S. dollar. You know, the general view among hedge funds is that um, other parts of the world are, are recovering faster than the U.S. Uh, the Fed is likely to let the economy run, run hot, which could be more inflationary for the U.S. and other parts of the world. But, you know, what we've seen over the past five years is, is that that, you know, and that view leads them to want to own more emerging markets over time. If something materially broke down that view, um, if the Fed announced you know, tomorrow that they were going to hike rates, then you, would, then you would see a shift and a change, and that's what you want hedge funds to do. But, you know, again, I think that always the, the, the issue with looking at hedge funds is, is it's the difference between, you know, the individual data point, the anecdote that's being circulated versus what's happening more broadly in the industry. And so I wouldn't expect if hedge funds are long emerging markets or buying emerging markets today, I wouldn't guarantee you that they would be long in five years. But these tend to be pretty stable and persistent. Um, but I think the other thing that's, that's, you know, so when you think about that, that grates with how a lot of people think about hedge funds and that they want to hear something special about this stock or that stock or some particular trade that nobody's thought about. But the competitive advantage of hedge funds is that when they like a market and they see an opportunity, they can go big. And so back to that example that I used in the mid-2000s, when I first started looking at this space and whether this idea would work, it showed that hedge funds on average had about a 35% long position in emerging markets. Right? You would never see, you would never walk into a wealth manager in the U.S. who likes, or even a pension fund, who is very optimistic about emerging markets and see a 35% emerging markets position. You might see, they, if they love it, they go from four to six. And so that flexibility is, is, is very, very powerful over time because, you know, over the period that I described in the mid-2000s, emerging markets outperformed the S&P by 30% a year. So asset allocation was giving hedge funds 1,000 basis points of alpha a year. It didn't matter what you owned in emerging markets. It's that you, you pick the right area. And so I think what we have over the next decade, again, is, is, you know, is the easy money in the S&P has been made. The easy money in the NASDAQ has been made. And, and could it go on for two years? Of course it could. But looking back 10 years from now, it is hard to see, it, I, I think it's statistically impossible to see the S&P putting up another decade with 13% annual returns. Makes a lot of sense. Historically, you should start to see some mean reversion. You have referenced the second holy grail of hedge funds. Uh, I always think of the first holy grail as alpha. W what's the second holy grail? So uh, let, me, let me first start with, it, with the term alpha. So people use alpha in a lot of different ways. Um, it, the interesting thing about going back to the 1990s, nobody talked in terms of alpha. I mean, alpha was a concept that was applied to hedge funds by institutional allocators who were trying to justify an allocation. Um, and it is statistically problematic um, because it all depends on what you're comparing one return stream to another. Um, but, but the basic idea of the first holy grail of hedge funds um, back in the mid-2000s was what I described. Can you find Seth Klarman in 1982 when he's just hired to build and run Bellpost? 
you know, can you find George Soros and Julian Roberts in the 1970s? Can you find, I don't know, you know, even today, Chris Shumway when, when he launched Tiger Global. Um, but, um, but and, and that's what the business lives and breathes on. That, that, you know, that if you, if you try to identify a guy today, he's going to continue to put up, or he's either going to continue to put up spectacular numbers, or, or, or he is, you know, so smart and so capable that that's exactly what he's going to do over the next 10 years. The reality is that's nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you could do it, you know, you should give all your money to three guys, go home, and come back in 10 years. Um, so the second holy grail was was we like the diversification benefits of the broad of the industry broadly, but God, it's frustrating to pay these high fees. You know, it's it's difficult to invest in something that's illiquid, where sometimes we don't get our money back at exactly the wrong time. Um, you know, the these things blow up with frustrating frequency. So if you could deliver the performance of hedge funds broadly but with low fees, daily liquidity, better downside characteristics, transparency, that this should have a role in every single hedge fund portfolio. That you don't then necessarily have to just pick 10 or 15 different illiquid hedge funds. You could have 20% of your assets in this liquid, low-cost vehicle, and, and then pick and choose how you, how you invest. Um, so it makes it makes all of hedge fund investing um, not just more efficient, but also it tends to um, it actually tends to improve returns and, and improve performance over time. And so you know if this had been embraced by institutional investors back in 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 two thousands uh, in the, sorry or in the in two thousand ten, you know they would have saved hundreds of billions of dollars in fees over the next decade. Um, but but the whole concept of it runs into the same issues that the active versus passive uh, debate has has been dealing with in, in you know the rest of the asset management industry for thirty years. So you touch upon two things that I have to ask before we we get uh, to my favorite questions. One is that active passive debate. Again, going back to the academics, you would think that as more people become passive, that should create inefficiencies that make it easier for the stock pickers, to make it easier for the active players. Do, do you think that is accurate? And why have we seen so many active managers fail to adjust to the money flows into passive? It's a great question, right? Does, does passive make active more difficult? Um, and I will tell you that I honestly do not, <laughs> do not know the answer to it. In theory, you are correct. Right. I mean, hedge funds should be out there saying, here's this stock. It's 20% undervalued because it's not included in this index. Um, and all we have to do is buy it, is buy it today and wait. And, you know, this big dumb elephant of an investor is going to come up and buy 20% of the assets in one day or 20% of the float in one day. Um, I, I think that, you know, there are a lot of, um, uh, there are a lot of myths about hedge funds. Um, that that have been perpetuated for a long time because they're i would say they're convenient myths um one that i've heard repeatedly that i've been asked about is is oh hedge funds aren't making money today because because the markets aren't volatile enough um there i haven't seen any good data that actually supports the contention that a normally more volatile market is necessarily good for hedge funds um what i do think though you can say is that when hedge when markets trend aggressively over some period of time, that hedge funds can be very good on at, at 
at jumping in and capitalizing on those trends, whether it's managed futures or, or other areas. Um, so, um, you know, so I think, I think passive is, has, has been a little bit of a bogeyman that people have put up there. Um, uh-huh. but again, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I will admit that I, I don't have a strong conclusion on this and maybe tomorrow somebody will show me something that, that is dispositive, but I haven't seen it. And early in your career, you were pretty heavily involved in the commodity space and the greater China region. Do you still track China closely? And do you have anything particular to say about what's been going on over there lately? I, I, I don't. Um, I would say my, so my experience with China was that around 2000, um, I had these, these, I came up with these two macro themes. One was that commodities would become much more important than they had been in years. And the other was that uh, the greater China region, really specifically China, was going to become an important area of asset management. And so I, you know, within a couple of years, I'd started two hedge funds in completely different businesses um, with guys to, to, to capitalize on both of those. Um, I, I would say the experience that we, that, that we had with China was that uh, capitalism in China is, 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 is done, or at least back then was done with a different set of rules. Um, and that, that, you know, the idea of porting um, standards of, of, of conduct um, as it relates to, to Chinese business activities um, often meant that the guy who had those standards was somehow the guy who walked out of the room with no money. Um, and, and clearly there's a lot more government intervention in the economy. I remember a guy at one of the private equity firms who'd had investments in China basically saying that, the, you know, he was talking about how the government would let them have two out of one out of three or two out of three investments would make money. And if the third one is making money, they'd have to somehow give it back. Um, so, um, I've spoken to some people recently about China who've continued to do business there, and and those those concerns concerns are still out there. But at a granular level, I'm not I'm not close to it today. Huh, quite interesting. I know I only have you for a limited amount of time, so so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Tell us what you're streaming these days. What what's keeping you entertained during a lockdown? Either Netflix, Amazon Prime, podcasts. What what are you keeping busy with? So this is going to be the most depressingly boring answer for you, I'm sure, of everyone. But um, my dad is 86 years old, and he's a lifelong opera fan, and he lives in New York. And last year at this time, he was going to the opera three times a week, and uh, I was trying to join him there. He obviously can't go to the opera this year. Um, so I've been streaming operas on Amazon Prime to either watch with him or, or, or talk to him about. Um, I do get in other things as well, but it's not, uh, it hasn't been a priority for me. Uh, that's not boring. O- opera's kind of interesting. Even if you're not an opera buff, it's still, you know, not running the, the middle poor, of television. The poor guy used to take me when I was young, and, and, and I would fall asleep. I'd have a, you know, a big lunch and then fall asleep every time. So I think in my, in my 50s, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I've, I've had sort of a renewed interest in it, and it's, it's wonderful to be able to share it with him. Tell us about uh, your early mentors. Who helped to shape your career? So I think the, the earliest one is uh, is my late uncle Amo Houghton. That's uh, H O U G H T O N. Um, he uh, he was this really extraordinary guy who unfortunately passed away earlier this year um, at age ninety three. But he had run wow. uh, a company called Corning Glass, which was um, a business that that 
his slash my family started back in the 1850s. But then he went to Washington, and my first job was working for him as he was a young congressman. And, you know, I hope people listening to this will go read his obituary, because if, if there was ever an example of somebody that we need in Washington today, it's him. Uh, he went to Washington. He served as a congressman. He tried to be bipartisan. He was friends with people across the aisle. Um, he really, I think, set the standard. Um, and and he, I think, just taught me you know, ultimately just a, a level of decency in business. Um, uh, you know, ultimately, you are responsible for, for, for conduct, and it's not always about just making money. Um, and I think, you know, I think another guy is, is Jim Wolfenson, who was when I was gave me my first job uh, as an M and A investment banker, and then he later went on to run the World Bank. Um, but he was just—he was just an extraordinary guy. And in his, you know, when I knew him back then, he just had this um, this energy in, in terms of wanting to learn. He picked up the cello when he was forty or something, and was you know performing uh, with Yo Yo Ma um, within within ten years. Just, just, just extraordinary. And I think there was something about. He had he had almost a Warren Buffett like um, enthusiasm for things. Um, I had the, the 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 pleasure of actually visiting with Buffett in 2016 on on Election Day, believe it or not, and we were talking about value investing and Seth and 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 all these things, and and you know and the guy at whatever age he was was just still bouncing off his chair with enthusiasm talking about things, and I think there's something really inspiring about that. Um, and then I think, you know, I think the one who's, who's not an early mentor, but I think one of the people I do admire at most in the industry today or, or, you know, over the past couple of decades is John Bogle, because he was right. You know, he was right, and he stuck to his guns uh, in the face of withering criticism and gale force headwinds. And, um, you know, I think I was, as I was thinking about this, I, I wanted to see if I could, there, there were two quotes that I thought I'd, is it okay with you if I, if I share two quotes sure. that I think are just sort of fascinating Absolutely. about the active and passive so if you so John Bogle, part of what he was influenced by was was Nobel laureate Paul Samuelson's whole idea of index funds and and investing in the market. And what Paul Samuelson said about John Bogle and the first index fund was, quote, "This Bogle invention, along with the invention of the wheel, the alphabet, Gutenberg printing, right? And so it was basically, look how extraordinary this index fund is. <laughs> and I remember, in the, was, I think it was the late 1990s, or early 2000s, uh, one of the luminaries of the LBO industry uh, was, had this great quote which said, after the wheel, God's greatest invention was the carry. And that to me, those two quotes <laughs> just summarized to me the whole active and passive debate. Is the role of asset managers to put their clients first and try to get as much money as they can reasonably get back to their investors? Uh, or is it to maximize the profits of an asset management industry? And uh, uh, you know, I've past fourteen years, I've, I've cast my lot with with Bogle. That's funny. You know, you referenced the Financial Times earlier. They were the first ones who had the quote out that a hedge fund is a system by which a savvy manager transfers wealth from naive investors to himself. And uh, I, I certainly think Bogle understood that, as did the person who was uh, talking about the carry. Let's go to everybody's favorite question. Tell us about what you're reading these days. What are, what are some of your favorite books? So 
Um, so my, my favorite books keep changing. Um, I go through phases where I get kind of obsessed with a particular topic and then kind of move on. Um, the I, one, one book that I keep going back to, um, and it, it has a lot to do with the hedge fund industry, although it has nothing to do with the hedge fund industry, which is a book that, believe it or not, was written in 1962 by a guy named Thomas Kuhn, and it's called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Sure. And what he he basically identified was that um, that you know that, that that progress in his case scientific progress doesn't just happen in a sort of gradual way that most people who have been you have an existing paradigm and most people who've been 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 brought up in that paradigm they've been trained in it they want to believe in the paradigm they self selected into the paradigm. And they will not abandon the paradigm until there is something new that is established that they can safely hop over to. And that's where the hedge fund industry is today. So I, I go back and I keep reading this because, uh, because every year that, you know, I, I still face these, these headwinds in the industry, um, uh, but, but we see them abating and we see more and more people buying into it. But I keep going back and reading it because I want to make sure that I'm not, you know, completely insane. Um, and then the other thing I did also is, and I would encourage people to go back and read books they read 20 years ago, um, particularly about business, because you see what a different world it was. And I recently reread, so I do have a copy of Seth's Margin of Safety that he gave me when I joined. Um, and, nice. and, you know, when you hear what he was writing about, um, and the kinds of things, the kinds of opportunities that he uses as examples, it is so clear that no hedge fund with any meaningful assets could do any of those things today. And if an opportunity like that came about, you know, it would be 70 sophisticated hedge funds competing for, 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 you know, each trade opportunity, each investment opportunity. Um, so I, I do think that, that, you know, there's another quote that I love. Um, my, my great grandfather was very good friends with this guy named George Santayana, who famously said, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And, and, you know, I think in the case of people who are in the asset management industry, five years ago is not history. Three years ago is not history. If you want to understand why quant-based investment strategies are disappointing you today, you've got to go back and look at the 1990s. You know, and even better yet, look at what they were saying in the 1990s about the 1970s. And, um, and there's not enough of that in the industry. Yeah, Ray Dalio has been a big, um, his new book is all about that. Uh, unprecedented doesn't mean it's never occurred. It's just never occurred in your lifetime. And if you go back through history, most of the things that seem to surprise us have happened time and time again after everybody forgets about the, the previous time. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, because Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, I think you can also often find examples that sometimes, and sometimes they're alarming examples. And if you look at the political situation today, you can point to very alarming, disturbing examples where you had, you know, not established democracies, but democracies that were under threat in some way. And you can see the same kinds of, you know, politicized debate around it. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think it would be, do us all a lot of good to uh, focus on 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 historical precedents and and think about what they mean today. Let's talk about the sort of advice you might give to a recent college grad who is interested in either hedge funds or liquid alts. What what sort of uh, career advice would you give them? So I think the the I guess I would start with um, uh, the the 
the statement that you want to find an area broadly that's likely to grow over the next 20 years. Um, and that probably has something to do with technology. Um, so, I mean, you know, one of the things I think is so incredibly sad about the coronavirus crisis is that you've had people whose you know lives were built around retail businesses that were built around um, you know, movie theater chains that were built around things that are probably never coming back in the same way that they were 20 or 30 years ago when they made that decision. So maybe this is kind of a shadow of you know Seth's original thing that find the right area. So if you're going to the asset management industry, have conversations with people about what do they expect to be big. And new, and maybe that's crypto. You know, I don't. I'm not a, a, a. I don't know an awful lot about crypto, but, but I think you can point to it and say crypto in 20 years or 10 years is going to be bigger in some way, shape, or form. Interestingly, the, um, and I said that you know the only way that you're going to be able to figure that out is by doing it day to day. One of the most interesting pieces of, of business advice I got was was ironically from from Mark Cuban, in 20 sorry 2001 or 2002. Um, when I met with him and, and we were talking about the future of, uh, well, I said, what, you know, how are you investing your money today? And he said that he was going to willing to spend a hundred million dollars of his money to invest in high definition television. And I asked him what that meant. And he said, I have no idea. I said, <laughs> he said, it could be producing. It could be better pipes into the homes. It could be all these different things. He said, but what I can tell you with certainty is that 10 years from now, people are going to want much better quality than the grainy TV that they have today, and and the only way that I'm going to know where the real opportunities are is by by doing it every day. It's not an academic exercise, and so I think when people are going into it, they should have that 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 view of trying to think about what's going on around them and how it's changing. Because if they're entrepreneurial, that's where they're going to see the opportunities. It's not by writing a business plan, you know, by pulling down Wikipedia. And I think that you know, alongside that, I would say flexible. You know, it's not it's it's um, it's not clear at at age twenty five or or twenty seven or however old you are. Um, it's not clear where the opportunities are going to be. We know that things will look very different in five or ten years, and so you know, keep financial flexibility, keep yourself on your balls of your on balls of your feet, so you can pivot as necessary. Huh, quite interesting. And our final question: What do you know about the world of investing today? You wish you knew twenty five years or so ago when you were first starting out. So I wish that I had understood um, how institutionalization of the alternatives business uh, would play out. Um, so, you know, we started this by talking about whether I was going to go into the LBO business or go into the hedge fund business. And my, in, one of, in a shockingly bad conclusion, I thought the LBO business had probably seen its best days. Because the things that had made LBOs these profit-generating machines was a function of the 1980s. It was a junk bond market. You could buy things with, you know, 5% equity down and you'd go buy a reasonable company with it because of distortions in the junk bond market. You had terribly run companies with inactive boards that you could take over and, and clean up and, and double their cash flow. And you had, um, uh, you know, companies had gone through conglomerization phases in the 70s and 80s and were selling off subsidiaries because, you know, XYZ hedge fund Baron, I mean, LBO Baron had dinner with the CEO and convinced him to sell it at six times cash flow. I mean, it was all of these things were, were you know, that made LBOs in the 1980s this really, really, these great investments, um, huge, huge, huge excess returns. 
What I didn't see, and by the way, when I was looking at this, you know, KKR had bought RJR Nabisco, and that had turned into kind of a fiasco, and people thought no one's ever going to be able to raise a $5 billion fund again today. What I didn't understand was that institutions and consultants around institutions, um, once that they had their own reasons for having these new asset class categories. So once they labeled LBO slash private equity an asset allocation, um, it was the first movers into that ended up getting new clients because they could say, we have special access. We know how to invest in this area and their business would grow. And then somebody else would look at them and say, oh my God, look at that. They just won that new client. And it seems to be in part because they know how to get invested in LBOs and we don't have that capability. So let's hire some people to do it. And this whole process builds on itself. And so now you have, you know, and, and so, you know, now this is why you have $30 billion hedge funds, which people would have said was preposterous 25 years ago, or, you know, people routinely raising 10 or $20 billion uh, private equity funds. And so, um, so I think if I'd known, if I'd understood that, I think I, there would have been different ways that I would have managed some of my businesses. But, you know, next life. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Andrew Beer, managing member at Dynamic Beta Investments. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous, I don't know, 389 such prior conversations. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at bloomberg.com opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Reggie Brazil is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Tracy Walsh is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.